Join over 5,000 attendees for the largest AI event in Asia, Super AI in Singapore, June 5th and 6th, 2024. Edward Snowden, Benedict Evans, Balaji Srinivasan, and over 150 others will hit the stage, joining the industry's most influential to explore and unveil the next wave of transformative AI technologies. Singapore will become a vibrant AI hub for a full week from June 3rd to the 9th, with over 150 side events that will make for unparalleled networking opportunities. Visit superai.com for 20% off tickets with the code REALVISION. Look for the link in the description. How low can yields go? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Jem Carson, founder of Kai Volatility. Hey there, how are you? Always good to be here. Doing well. Uh, well, happy to have you. Uh, so uh, th- what a crazy week we're in. Another bullish day for U.S. stocks and bonds. The 10-year fell below 4%. The Dow hit another record. Small caps storming higher. The Russell up 2.6%. Uh, but we had the S&P and the Nasdaq both kind of gaining into the close. Um, and I got to tell you, all of this comes, uh, as we know, after the massive moves yesterday and under the category of you cannot make this up. I don't know if you saw this, Jim, but commuters in New York City had to do a double take this morning when a bull appeared on the railroad track, startling traffic <laughs> in and out of Penn Station, a real life bull. Now, for those yeah. of you who are listening audio only, maybe you're not sitting in the States and didn't see this. It was like a giant longhorn <laughs> bull, like straight out of Yellowstone. And so, of course, everyone taking a double take only in New York. But you know that everybody who was on Wall Street coming in was like, it's a sign. It's a sign. <laughs> no, does this happen in Chicago, Jim? Uh, yeah, I mean, we got bulls everywhere <laughs> in this town, right? No. Um, yeah, no, this is uh, that that is a sign, I think. You're, to your point, things are getting weird. Yeah, sign of the apocalypse, maybe. I don't know. Um, But listen, very seriously, I would love to hear your take on the action because we know the headlines are saying Fed pivot. Clearly, the Fed meeting uh, um, and the presser and what we heard was a catalyst. But what do you see happening in the markets? What do you make of this reaction? I mean, you know what I'm going to say, right? Uh, It's, uh, yeah, the, the macro narrative and everything falls in line and that helps, right? But the bigger issue here was flows. You know, tomorrow is Dece OPEX. Um, this is the biggest options expiration of the year by far. Um, it is the primary driver for why we were able to point to a calendar at November 1st and, and, and point out the coming rally that has now been 15%, right? Um, in a month and a half, we rallied 15% in the S&P. Like, you need to not lose sight of that. Um, these were, these are not coincidences, right? The, there's a massive amount of positive flows in this market and it is squeezing the shorts, but, uh, Powell is just piling on. Um, we're at three standard deviations over the 20 day right now. You see that so rarely RSIs are, uh, you know, stretched more than they've been, um, in the last two years. So, um, but again, that's what happens when you get everything aligning together. The flows themselves were already super positive, and then you got this little Powell um, bit on top of that. But um, but these things have a funny thing, uh, you know, when everybody gets bullish and everything just seems like coast is clear is exactly when um, you need to start looking the other way. And that's what we're starting to do. Obviously, we don't think because of these flows that it really 
resolves to the downside until uh, mid-January or so, and it could even stretch a bit more. But this is the point of the story where you start getting that market up vol up, uh, you start getting high realized moves to the upside, and all the pieces that eventually lead to the blow off top are in place. So uh, you know the next part of this chapter is really that end um, end move, uh, which we think will come probably in the next. Uh, you know, by January 17th, and if not by February, but this is uh, this is exactly what we've thought is coming. Yeah, it, it is. And and we've been talking about it. You've been spot on. You can all go back and watch those daily briefings. Jensen, kind enough to bring us along on this, pointing out what's going on on the sort of operational side of the market. Um, and it has been powerful. So we're going to talk macro and we're going to talk into next year in just a moment. But, um, you know, from a from a sort of you know, trading perspective, it, it, that's a good, we've got a good month when, when we're going to be in this situation. Um, and we've already got questions coming in about where this could take us. So based on what you're seeing from flows and from some of this, how powerful does it look from here? Because, you know, you have people say, oh my God, we look at what happened from fe- from November and this has been an enormous move already. Maybe this is it. And other people who are like, when when I see these kind of signals and you're getting this kind of action, no matter how you feel about it, you have to pay attention and you have to kind of ride this. So where could we go on yields? Where do you see stocks going? How much momentum is behind this? Yeah, uh, again, it's only a month and a half. Um, but uh, based on uh, what we know about flows and what's coming by the end of the year, and then again, uh, behind that for that kind of last pit of, bit of demand into the January expiration, um, we're not done yet. Um, that said, uh, if you look at the last six, seven weeks and you kind of map it out, it didn't all this today, you know, last couple of days feel huge, right? We had a couple other massive, you know, 5%, 7% rallies. Um, but we've had a lot of, uh, slow time in between and, uh, you know, that digestion is what we're going to get next. Um, why do we know that? Uh, why do we think that? Uh, because after options expiration goes, all the open interest disappears. It's higher. There's a lot more open interest, and uh, you know it, you can sell that to buy behind it. And so there's an implied vol is incredibly cheap behind the December expiration, and entities are long it versus what they're short in December. So everybody, the whole street is decaying longer implied volatility, and right in time for the holidays. So um, I would expect a digestion from here for the next couple weeks or week and a half, I guess I should say, um, past Christmas, I would expect after that into the end of the year, we get a Santa Claus rally again, and that would be the next move higher. Um, so expect, again, pullback, digestion, ball in the front of the curve coming down. The back of the curve is too low, so that'll still experience decay, but I would ex- just expect decay, nothing more. It is time to start buying that. And the next move again up will be market up, vol up, and we'll continue to see that, in my opinion, until we hit that January 17th date. So it is time to buy vol and the call wing in the back end of the curve at this point. I actually that that started really two two weeks ago or so. And that is the 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 play right now. It, usually the last part of the rally is a buy vol move. And, and if you can make money on vol on the upside, you better believe you can make money on vol on the downside. So um this is a very good time to start preparing for what's coming next. And uh, ironically, the ball up in the back of the curve when it does come is one of the actual drivers of a reversal in the market because it unpins vol when the vol just gets too low in the back. Entities are willing to step in and buy it and take away the supply from dealers. And that's what we're starting to see. Mm, Amazing. I I love when we get 
options humor in the chat, which we have now, because Frank Anthony said, can Vanna and Charm close the effing door? <laughs> your crowd, your crowd rolled up for you today, Jim. So yeah. um I just want to I just want to point out something on this on this powerful rally um and and flag uh some other program we had on the platform. Beth Kindig was on today as part of our Crypto Academy Live. And she also made a great point as you're thinking about this. So Jem's saying, pay attention, start to prepare, know what's coming, but start to prepare for the next leg. Um, Beth talking about this from a perspective of managing your portfolio. If some of your holdings start to accelerate to the upside, let's have a listen to that. So when I talk about things, just keep in mind that it can change. So if NVIDIA is up 100% or 200%, that allocation grew, even though I didn't add any money. And I just like to clarify that because sometimes I'll say an allocation and in a week or two later, it's different. And that's why uh, gains or losses change your allocation without you adding or taking away. Yeah. But I will say that from the very beginning of the IO fund, which was in 2019, 10% was our max. And Bitcoin immediately had a 10% allocation and has this whole time for the most part, except for when we went to the sidelines that one time or one or two times. And then we were 100% ready to go put that right back in. Ethereum, uh, you know, Ethereum has had the 10% and an altcoin has had 6%. This is very high conviction. And that is exactly what we put into our stocks. So NVIDIA would, would have been 10% and then it grew to 16 or 18%. And we're, we're trying to take gains to get that risk management under control. So that was from day one of the Academy Live. Uh, we have another lineup tomorrow. If you are not a member, go to the website and create a free account to access it. You can find all the information there. Absolutely fantastic interview with Beth, who is phenomenal on all things tech, um, including crypto um, and interesting because she looks at it through that lens. So really interesting conversation. I encourage you all to go take a look at it. And of course, you all know Beth from that amazing NVIDIA call that she had, but she's very in the weeds. It's always really interesting to hear from her. Um, and we have got Denise Schultz tomorrow too. I just had a prep call with her. So that's going to be an amazing conversation with two of our community members. Um, so Jim, to bring it back to our conversation, um, how do you think about managing risk as we're in this kind of rally? Because I mean, sometimes people just, you know, this is the fear that people buy in, jump in. Um, what, what do we, how do we need to think about risk in this period? Yeah. So implied volatility is so low. You'd be foolish not to, uh, to try and still play this in two dimensions. Um, there is, uh, it is much easier to, to play with calls out of the money calls, which are on a uh, you know, we're talking about in January, they're on an eight and a half ball or so out of the, just out of the money. Um, so incredibly uh, easier time to manage risk. Uh, you know, not the time given that we're three dimension, three standard deviations above the 20 day that uh, the moves are happening as a function of flows and not a function of fundamentals. It, it is a really important time to try and take those upside bets with uh, defined risk and, and options are the way to do that. Um, so an easy way to do that stock replacement, you know, sell your stock by by calls. Um, even better is to uh, kind of overbuy calls and be short some stock because uh, you know the more volatile the more volatile the, the rally is, the, the calls will give you gamma and give you extra mileage to the upside, but you'll be hedged to the downside. So uh, I know that's uh, maybe complicated for some, but the but the reality is this is not a market that is going to continue to move in two dimensions. It's really moving with faster speed to the upside with implied volatility going up. And it's an important time to to manage risk accordingly. 
Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again. March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holds barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. So this is an interesting conversation from AJ. And AJ, thank you for asking it because I feel like this is exactly where people are mentally with this. Um, so he said, should we so so should we see a slight crash in the market around the 17th? So there's this sort of feeling, but but you can understand because the moves have been like this all year, even when people are getting crushed. You know, we're seeing treasuries move in a way that they didn't they didn't move previously. These are huge moves. And the same thing with stocks. When they run, they seem to go so fast. So, you know, now that you put that sort of that that date out there that, you know, January 16th, 17th could extend beyond if you were paying attention, he did say that. Um, then it's kind of like and then it's going to go, you know, go down significantly. How, how, are we in that kind of period? Generally, the market's going to move like that, these big so, moves up and then reactions down. So we need a couple of things to be there, you know, for, for the recipe to kind of come together. This is a conditional probability. That is the window where things can happen, right? And that is, why is that? Because these flows that have been so supportive for the market go away after that period um, for some time. And, um, you know, the momentum that comes with that slows, which generally can then lead to a reversal and it's a mean reversion. Now, all that said, does that mean we're going to crash? Not necessarily, right? A lot of that, a lot of things need to happen for that to become a very risky kind of scenario. One, you need uh, implied vol to really unpin, and you need to continue to have market up vol up into this move. Um, so you need this to be a increasingly um, kind of almost IO popping uh, like move, and we're starting to see that, right? Um, but I think it would make a lot of sense to go revisit. Um, highs or, or somewhere close, um, you know, a minor new high or just missing a double top, right? Something along those lines are, are there's supply there. And if the, if it lines up with a positive narrative, all the shorts can, would be squeezed by that point, I think it's fair to say. Um, and so there'd be less demand to buy equities on the way down. Um, and, and so the recipe is, is a supply and demand imbalance. And we're starting to get there, but we're not there yet. Um, and also a vol and pinning um, and then the flows at that same time disappearing. And all these things are kind of lining up to happen in that window. Now, the more people are expecting it, the more I'm on every format, like talking about it, there is some dampening and it never quite happens that easily. Um, well, not never, it, 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 you know, we called the, the last couple moves perfectly, but I think um, we've been talking about this for three months. So there's a decent chance if we get there that it's uh, kind of front run and managed. And if that's the case, then then the odds of a, a fast move decline, and it could just be a mean reversion with, with vol decline. But but we'll see when we get there. We know what to look for. We know what's happening. And, and at the very least, uh, it is not yet the time to be bearish. And, uh, and, and that said, there will be a time if we keep going like this 
to be that bearish and it is going to be in that Jan 17th to Feb kind of 14th window and likely on the front end if it's a bigger move. Right. I'm, I'm glad you clarified that because whenever we're talking about this, I mean, it, we, we just kind of all do that. It's human nature, I think. But but these are always probabilities when we're talking about them. And then they're always sort of, you know, target windows. But this is not sort of, you know, Nostradamus predictions here. This is yeah. this is just sort of what I've seen. Yeah, I do want to of- say something about that real quick. You know, people think in two dimensions. They want to pat. They want you to give them the whole path. And we're able to actually to. to you know, give high probabilities to certain paths being more likely. And when we when we hit it just right, we get the exact path. And that's really hard to do. Um, uh, but what's easier to do is to understand the forces at play and how they affect the distribution. And that is something that we can do with great conviction. And that means if you bet again and again on a, on a correct probability relative to what the market is doing, you can make a lot of money over the long run. And so we know those forces. And those are the forces that I'm trying to describe to everybody here and make sure they understand um, but that does not mean you circle January 17th and just blindly get uh, bearish. If these things continue to transpire and we continue on this path and we're giving you the recipe, then that would be a time to be, um, you know, the probabilities then increase for a short there. Yeah, super, super helpful. So on that on that note and helping us sort of see the world that you see, um, talk to me a little bit about structured products. I know we're going to get a question about them because you've been talking about the fact that there could be sort of growth in this, you know, it, it, sort of a longer term about just new things that are coming up. But um, you just said to me earlier that you're watching that because of the relationship with interest rates. So what do we need to be aware of when it comes to that? And why is that important for to, for people to have on their radar? Yeah, Maggie, I haven't talked about this anywhere. So this is actually a big, important point for people to kind of think about. Um one of the biggest drivers of structural um, markets, you know, market structure lately, meaning the last couple of years, has been the absolute, you know, enormous growth of structured product issuance. Um, because markets have broadly the last two years gone nowhere and in real terms lost money, uh, because more importantly, interest rates are higher at five and a half percent, you can stack um, yield with derivatives on top of uh, that five and a half percent and get people eight percent non-correlated in a pretty straightforward easy format and, and this is something that's very popular um, as opposed to being in equities right now um, that demand is driving vol compression how is that driving compression when the banks issue these structured products these products are vol selling and so the banks take on long volatility and then they need to go sell that volatility those options to the street and there's a massive supply of this um, and it is pinning the S&P 500 in terms of implied volatility. Dealers are massively long vol in the index. However, uh, in the other parts of the market, the bond market, FX, uh, precious metals, everywhere else, this supply does not exist. And then with interest rates going higher, volatility is actually increasing everywhere else. So what that leads to is this dispersion trade. It's kind of like a donut. All of these supplies pinning the middle, the S&P 500, while everything else is flying around. This is part of why we've had breadth issues. This is part of why we see massive rotations from one side to the other. This is a structural phenomenon that has been very, very important to how markets are working in the last two years, and more, more so than ever in the last year. So much of that is tied to interest rates. If and when interest rates start to decline like they have, and we've had a, seen a significant reversal, that will naturally slow the issuance of structured products and the demand for it. 
That is something that is very important to watch because it has been so critical to this, the growth and, and success of this dispersion trade, which has grown massively. It is so important to the vol broadly in the market being pinned. I, I've equated the structured product issuance to like the Dutch boy sitting with his thumb oh. in the dike. The liquidity is, you know, uh, you know, the the problems are sitting on the other side of the dam, and and it's kind of holding things together. If you if that guy if that little Dutch boy has to go go home for the night um, because he's not well fed, um, you, you start to have a problem. And, and I think that is a very important thing that nobody else is talking about that is a very important thing, thing to think about. Now, to be clear, that issuance takes time. There's a little bit of a lag, right? It's not like all of a sudden it just stops and then it affects everything. Um, you know, some of these things have to expire, there's less issuance, et cetera. And then after that, you can have some issues. But I, it's something that we're definitely watching closely. There's a lot of short ball out there in the street, and it's been counterbalanced right by this issuance. If that issuance disappears, now you get into a situation where there's a lot more kindling and a lot more risk in the market. And now some of those structural macro issues that have been kind of, you know, we haven't had to worry about because the market just seems to kind of shrug them off again. All of a sudden they'll matter again. And so I think that's something that's very important to pay attention to as interest rates go lower. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, and and I'm just going to put a pin in that because we are going to go back and continue to talk to you about it, but also um, take your your um, warning on that and 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 stay on that. Are you saying? Am I right in understanding that we've been asking the whole time as the Fed as as the Fed has aggressively raised interest rates that something's going to break? There's a potential for something to break. The scenario you described sounds like if they lower interest rates. It's very counterintuitive. So historically, right, implied volatility and realized volatility of the market increases when interest rates go up. Why? Because liquidity is being pulled out of the system. There's less liquidity, which creates more volatility. Um, But the last time we saw this was in the 1970s. And guess what? There were no derivatives back then. There were no structured products. They actually were created in the 70s. so this is a uh, kind of a reflexive opposite effect. And so it's very counterintuitive. But instead of people just going into the bond market, which is happening, a lot of people are also going into the bond market plus. They're going into the bond market and then using that collateral of the T-bills to then get some other yield. And, all, and the majority of that is ball selling. And so reflexively, you're getting, you are getting volatility increasing on the edges of the market everywhere but the S&P, but then you're getting the supply right into the middle in the S&P 500. And so ironically, now as interest rates would go lower, you're actually going to remove that pin. Now the question is, are you also, uh, you know, dampening the volatility? Otherwise, I would argue if it's a secular kind of an increase in, in, in interest rates, that that is still risky, right? All the things that are also coming, uh, all the risks that are also coming with broadly increasing interest rates, like populism and protectionism and global war and all these other things um, are already uh, happening um, and volatility broadly is going higher anyway. So I think removing this pin is more important than the uh, marginal benefit we're going to see from uh, from lower interest rates in the short term otherwise. So it is counterintuitive, but that's the best trades are the ones that are counterintuitive. And and this is happening against the backdrop of, I mean, this is not, you know, we're in peaceful times and every, you know, you're, you're saying that it's happening against a macro environment that is in and of itself more volatile. That Absolutely. creates that sort of toxic brew where this can be problematic. What does that look like if it breaks? Like what what would happen 
in that kind of situation? Or what are the types of things that you would be concerned about is a better question since you don't have a crystal ball? Yeah, look, it, what it does is it fattens the tail. It's uh, it's kindling. Um, and uh, it, you know, any, uh, any issue that comes up becomes magnified. And, and uh, instead of, you know, a Silicon Valley bank blowing up and then it not really mattering because of all is well supplied and, and, and you see a quick reversal, now these things can can start to to feed on themselves and become bigger issues. Um, we see this again and again uh, throughout history, um, whether it's you know uh, Asian flu and then long-term capital management's implosion and 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 what came after that, whether it's um, you know uh, the Volpocalypse and kind of the the, mm-hmm. the decline that we saw there, even during the COVID crash. You know that we knew about that in December, early January. It didn't happen until mid-February when when all of the open interest in March kind of came in and that was kind of the kindling that allowed for a 30% one month decline, expiration to expiration. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you need the right environment for um, to get the volatile moves and you need people to be offsides. Um, what I'm saying is basically people have been leaning and depending on this one trade that's massive and that's stable. But if that begins to disappear, then there is very little supply of vol and liquidity broadly is weak otherwise. And that could be a real issue. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Join over 5,000 attendees for the largest AI event in Asia, Super AI in Singapore, June 5th and 6th, 2024. Edward Snowden, Benedict Evans, Balaji Srinivasan, and over 150 others will hit the stage, joining the industry's most influential to explore and unveil the next wave of transformative AI technologies. Singapore will become a vibrant AI hub for a full week from June 3rd to the 9th, with over 150 side events that will make for unparalleled networking opportunities. Visit superai.com for 20% off tickets with the code REALVISION. Look for the link in the description. This is such an important conversation. These structured products that you're talking about, are they that are kind of, you know, based on on where we are with interest rates, are they are they mostly is the appetite and has all of the trades mostly been in the institutional realm? No, I mean you get a lot of family offices, you get some retail. And to be clear, it's not just here in the US, it's global. Um, the it's important to note structured products are bigger than equity investing in Korea, in uh, in Asia. And so what, uh, what does that look like? What are they buying? What are, what are, what are, what are those? There are a million things? different structures. There's auto callables. There's I could go on and on about all the structures, but broadly they are selling puts, selling calls uh, in different formats, um, collecting yield on that, and that is going on top of the the, the risk free yield. So again, if you're getting five and a half percent right now, um, I you know and and T Bell, I can now post that as collateral, right? Mm. Um, that's good collateral for risk. And I can write options. I can do all kinds of other things to then stack a yield on top of that. That's what structured products essentially do. They get their yield and then they also um, structure a, a yield on top of that because they, the collateral is risk-free. It. And so uh, there's a million different, uh, these are very popular mom and pop in Asia. Uh, that's actually, you know, there's been a huge, uh, you know, you can buy them at your convenience store type thing, right? Um, it's massive, yeah. Um, but it's also something that's growing significantly in the U.S. and that's been a, a massive trade. And it makes sense, actually. It sounds mm-hmm. crazy because it's not what we're used to. But if you can get 8% non-correlated, really low risk, 
um, you know, uh, and you don't you don't actually uh, eat into that till you're down 20% in the market or up 20% from here. Um, that's really appealing in the context of a market that has lots of other risks. Um, that broadly is not as appealing as a very expensive market in some ways. Um, you know, it, it is a very appealing uh, alternative. Now, to be clear, two years ago, you only got 4% on that structured product. That wasn't very interesting. And, and you were just going through a 15-year, you know, 12% on average market rally. So it did no, there was no demand uh, in the U.S. at least, or very little, for structured products. And it is, it is a complete change. Um, and it is, you know, a value proposition that makes sense. There's new ETFs that are doing it. There's new structured, you know, notes. There's all kinds of things that, and, and ways to do this. So we'll come, we'll continue to come back to that. Thank you for flagging that. Uh, let's talk about interest rates as we wrap up here. You tweeted that uh, history will not be kind in, in reflecting on this Fed meeting. Uh, you see, it seems like with, as with stocks, you see yields going down for now. Um, the Fed's acknowledge is going to ease. You seem to disagree with that idea or think they're wrong about that. Talk to me a little bit about what you see happening in 24. When yeah, I'm going to take this rates. real slow, Maggie. I want to make very clear. The reason interest rates have gone, inflation has gone higher, is because of populism. The monetary policy in the Federal Reserve has driven the economy for 40 years and stimulated on every pullback, right? That's what's driven 20% interest rates to go to, to go to zero. And that seems like a free lunch to them because we never got inflation, right? Why wouldn't they just keep doing it? But what most people don't understand is the reason we never got inflation from all this monetary policy is because monetary policy is deflationary. Monetary policy is deflationary. Let me repeat, printing $20, $30 trillion is deflationary. Why? Because that money went to capital. It went to corporations. The people who borrow money at zero are not mom and pop for the most part, right? The majority, the overwhelming majority of that money went to the top 0.1% to companies. And corporations do what? They try and make a profit. And how do they make a profit? By reducing their costs, right? And increasing their market share. So we created a massive growth engine for 40 years. We created technological and Ubers and Amazons and all kinds of different innovations. And we created globalization for 40 years. Is that a coincidence that the 40 years of, of uh, China's expansion and, and, and the globalization happened during this window? No, that's that's what corporations needed to, to get more profits. And margins are also at a record accordingly. So monetary policy has been massively deflationary. What people don't realize is when you, all the, the, the cost of monetary policy is inequality. Because if you keep sending money to the top 0.1% for 40 years, and they get a large and larger share and labor itself does not because they're having to compete globally with other uh, labor and, and technology, at some point you get your let them eat cake moment. And this has been building for about 15 years. We had uh, Occupy Wall Street. We had uh, you know, the Tea Party movement about 13 years ago. And it took a, a little bit politically. You needed Trump to bring the right left, right? And all of his rusted out cities in middle America. You needed the left to go further left with Bernie Sanders and AOC. And then you got the spark, right? And, and this just takes time because generationally, it's an issue of millennials and who, and who have They've been the ones who have been labor have been the most hurt, right? They're at 40% the wealth creation household formation. And I'll kind of speed this up from here, but the important part is populism, which is a, a political phenomenon and that is primarily driven by millennials on down, a younger generation 
is driving fiscal spending. It is driving um, deglobalization and protectionism, right? All of these things drive major, major effects. And so we see this throughout history. It is why we're getting global war. It is why we're getting monetary war. It's why we're seeing uh, resource scarcity. It is why interest rates are going higher and why we're seeing inflation. And that's not going away. That is the cost of 40 years of inequality. And that is a political phenomenon from uh, all these guys living at home in mom and dad's basement and not being able to afford a home. And that is, uh, we are going to continue to get protectionism. And it's not just here locally, it's globally as well. And that is a time of competition, not a time of cooperation. That is where we are. And we've been talking about this for three years. And we continue to see all the signs of it. And it is going nowhere. That secular reality means that inflation, and you're seeing it in the service numbers, we're seeing it in the labor numbers, we're seeing it across the board, all the signs are there if you look, that what's balancing that is the cyclical pressures, which happens if you increase interest rates in the short term, yes, it'll you'll get the trickle down and you'll, you can slow the economy a bit. And we are seeing that, but that that's looking at one number and not understanding the realities of what's going on. These, the, there's a reason the economy has continued to outperform what people expect. There's a reason that this is we've done transitory 2.0 and here comes transitory 3.0. Yes, cyclically, you can slow the economy for a bit, but that engine underneath it that is driving, which is the rebalancing of inequality and the protectionism, will continue to be there under. And if you now reverse what you're doing with the cyclical measures to try and slow inflation, guess what happens? The same thing that happened in 68 to 70, which is where... Um, you know, uh, William McChesney Martin pivoted and, and inflation originally went from six to three and then to 12. And then what happened with Arthur Burns, where in inflation went from 12 to 6%, he pivoted and then it went to 15, 16. We are amidst a secular inflationary turn. And this is not a one year, two year thing. You can get cyclical downturns in inflation like we're seeing, but the secular realities are still in play and will be for the next 10 to 15 years. It's a beach ball. You can't hold it down. Exactly. And there's 41. nothing the Fed can do, by the way. People are going to kind of be like, what should the Fed do? The Fed does not have the tools to solve this inflation as long as we as a people decide to maximize median outcomes and not mean outcomes. We are not maximizing GDP anymore. We're maximizing the average person's uh, earnings. And that is a very different thing. And if we're going to do that as a populist, that is going to slow growth. That is going to be a demand push economy. And that's going to drive inflation. And we, I understand the political realities of it and, and why we need to do it. Um, and, but if we are going to do that, if that is what we want to do, expect more inflation and expect all the things that come with inflation, which is protectionism mm -hmm. and also global conflict. By the way, I just when I was talking to uh, someone earlier this week, look at any poll and they come back saying people feel less well off. They feel less well off than their parents. They feel like the economy is terrible. Even even if you point to all the statistics, they they don't feel like things are going well. By the way, 41 million members of Gen Z will be eligible to vote in 2024. It's Every a huge voting block that's coming. Dramatically increases because baby boomers are dying and, and millennial, millennials who are the biggest next bubble are coming into greater and greater political dominance. Importantly, also, inflation is a flat tax. So the great irony of this is it's a cycle. The more you get these pressures, the more inflation you get, the more frustration you get from that populace who wants more help. And so uh, you'll end up getting more fiscal policy in the form of Inflation Protection Acts, in forms of uh, price controls and all kinds of things that seem like they're not fiscal, but they are at the end of the day. 
and it is a loop. It is a never-ending loop um, until uh, eventually that rebalancing happens to some extent. There's enough action from taking from the rich and giving to the poor and just quite simply time and adjustment and normalization of markets. Some people's heads are exploding as you say that, Jen, but it would be a lot easier to talk about uh, the future if people had it through a reasonable economic lens and not a tribal partisan one, we might actually make some progress at finding a way forward that works for everybody. But um, Jim, amazing conversation today. I'm so glad, and, and even now we don't have enough time, but so glad that we were able to scratch the surface and that you put these issues on our radar. We will be sure to follow up with them when we see you again, but thank you for that. Amazing. Always a pleasure being here, Maggie. Thanks so much. Listen, have a wonderful holiday season. We'll see you on the other side in 24. I think we answered a lot of your questions, even though I didn't say them because I was looking in the chat. Um, but uh, we'll, you can be sure that we'll, we'll continue to bring them up again too. But what he was saying, I think was so important that it was worth, it was worth missing some of the questions for that. Um, just a programming note for all of you, as I mentioned, day two of the Academy Live crypto tomorrow. Also, Beth Kingdig is the first in our extended marketplace. You know, we had the exponentialist. We said more was coming. Um, Beth is is uh, in the next cohort, which is super exciting. Raul and Samuel are going to do a town hall on that 10 a.m., I think, 10 a.m. on Monday. Um, so check it out. You, they'll explain how it's all working, where you can find it, what it means for RV members. So be sure to make sure that you tune in for that. And we'll give a lot more details to some of the other great people that are going to be participating. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you again tomorrow. Take care and good luck out there.